Uh, so they're making their mistake after... Nope, that's escape. <laughs> they're making their escape. Okay. Live from the Mundangerous Winter Circle in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 126 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're bringing some Yuletide cheer as we rejoice in your gaming triumphs. And later, the poacher has no respect for class boundaries in the Character Creation Forge. Yeah, so uh, we are recording remotely today, and I am in a literal walk-in closet. Uh, so hopefully the sound is not too terrible compared to what you're used to. It's but typical Shane. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All of you who've been suspicious, let this <laughs> do nothing to allay your fears. Uh, so let's get right into the triumphs. Um, so we know we wanted to do this episode because the holidays can be a tough time for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And frankly... I didn't know what to expect when we asked for this, um, but as I was going through and kind of curating these and um, assembling them into one episode, uh, it, it kind of turned into like chicken soup for the gamer soul. Uh, they're exciting. Some of them are inspirational. Others are just heartwarming. Uh, it was it was really cathartic. So hopefully this can bring a little bit of holiday cheer if you're struggling or a little more if you're enjoying it. Yeah, I got to say, when we asked for RPG horror stories, you know, we got a, a nice batch of them. But, man, your triumphs poured in. So I- I'm hoping that's a reflection of the, the industry and the hobby as a whole. Uh, all right. You want to kick us off with the first one? This one comes from Michael, who reminds us that the dice can surprise the GM as much as the players. So the background is they're playing a Planescape game. The players have infiltrated a Githyanki pirate fleet escorted by dragons. Oh, man, this, is, this sounds amazing. So they're making their escape after killing the captain, and Michael had planned that the dragons would add to the chase, Uh, but the players thought that they would fight them. So, in their words, We steal a small skiff and set sail across the astral sea toward the portal to Sigil, and a red dragon sets off after us. In an attempt to draw away the closing dragon, the lizard man druid turns himself into an eagle and tries to fight the dragon. He quickly becomes minced meat, and the dragon starts cooking him. On his final death saving throw, he rolls a natural 20 and squirms out of the dragon's claws and now is floating toward the skiff. At the same time, the half-orc fighter launches himself from the skiff onto the dragon and then grappling hooks himself to the beast. So the fighter gives it all he's got while the druid and the bard heal him from the skiff. The dragon starts desperately clawing at the fighter who finally succumbs as the casters have no more ranged healing left. But then the fighter remembers he's got relentless endurance as a half-orc. And then he's back to 1 HP for a single round of fighting, and his last attack crits and brings the dragon to exactly negative 1 hit points. No uh, dice, no HP fudged at all, Michael says. So he says, the players were ecstatic. The fighter player got up from the table and yelled with his fist raised high. They spent a half hour talking about the encounter as they were packing up, and next time we met, the fighter retold the encounter again as soon as he got in the door. This is the first... This is his first time playing tabletop RPGs, and I think we kind of got him hooked. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we talk a lot about how, hey, you, sometimes you can fudge these dice or, or whatever in order to make uh, a combat more exciting, but it is, 
it, it, one of my favorite things is when it all comes together, even when, you, you know, you set the pieces up sort of like dominoes, hoping they'd fall in the right place. But sometimes it absolutely does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, if you're used to fudging the dice all the time, uh, the players kind of start to suspect that's what's going on. But if you're not and they're they, you know, in their own words, there were no dice and no hit points were fudged. You know, it was the real thing. Like you did it. You sold them. That's perfect. Our next triumph story is from Greek Stronghammer. So he writes, My father, a longtime DM and the person who introduced me to the show, was running a one-shot for me and a couple friends. Two of them had played for half a year in our family game. The other two had never played an RPG in their life. We being middle schoolers had been screwing around the whole time with, you know, I pick his pocket or uh, in the end I'm going to take out so-and-so. So we had made it to the boss's lair, a giant fireworm. We started off the fight with the paladin falling in lava and being all but knocked out (laughs) before he was able to escape, which turned out to be a very appropriate beginning to the battle. After about five rounds, we had almost worn the thing down, but we were all almost dead. Then the fireworm rolls a crit on one of the new player's characters, a stereotypical rogue. Its giant mouth covers him and left him in a cocoon of amber, unconscious and bleeding out. But that round, we took down the worm. Lava began to flow into the area and the player's face took on a look of resignation as he knew he would die. We then spent the whole next round breaking him out of the lava, and something clicked as the rogue player said, wait, you guys are staying to help me. It was then that he realized that it was a team, cooperative game. I've been DMing for the group ever since. I love that uh, both of these first two stories have to do with new players, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of discovering part of the magic that a lot of us longtime gamers know. Like It's a cooperative game. We're all on the same side here. Yeah, I just also like the thing where it's like, oh, you guys saved me. Like, I was ready to imagine myself dying, but you saved me. You really liked me. <laughs> I was uh, I was imagining picking your pockets while you were sleeping. Right. I thought that's what I was supposed to do because I'm a rogue. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, okay. This game is very different than I thought. <laughs> I think maybe this is a theme that's going to come out in this episode, but one of my favorite things about this hobby is that... Uh, a triumph story, uh, like a, an amazing, cool story, it occurs anytime something like that happens to anyone at the table, right? There's like five or six of us at the table, but only one person needs to roll a crit for everyone to have an awesome story. Yeah, I don't think any of the stories we're going to hear are about the person who wrote it. You know, they're always about somebody else at the table having a great time. And that's probably the most, like, heartwarming part of these triumphs is just like, they're not about you having a good time. They're about being part of somebody else's amazing time. Yeah, we don't get these kind of stories from um, I was on a you know, a late night run all by myself. Yeah, exactly. And man, I got some sick drops. Right. <laughs> that, that Mephisto run was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ball run 12496 was oh, much better than 12494. Right. <laughs> Oh, Diablo 2 jokes. <laughs> All right, you want to do the next one? Yeah, this is from Jesse, the happy DM. I recently just DM'd my first ever session with no combat. It was three and a half hours of purely role-playing. This was our group's ninth session together, and it went wonderfully. My players even gave me a round of applause when we finished. It was a wonderful feeling. My advice to other DMs would be not to shy away from having a session that doesn't involve a combat. D&D in particular can sometimes devolve into scenes of rote info-grabbing, shopkeeper swindling, and goblin bashing. Keep those NPCs interesting, and your players will have a better time for it. Uh, How come you never applaud me, Shane? 
Uh, cause you've never had a good session. Oh, fair. That's fair. You know, I'm glad you don't lie. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at least you're honest. When I do, you'll appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is another sort of following that theme of discovery, right? The idea that, um, games don't have to be necessarily what they've always been in the past, right? Um, you can do a game that, that is a completely different format or completely different theme from anything else. And, and because you're still spending time around the table with people that you enjoy spending time with, like it can, it can end up magical anyway. Um, I think I love that. Yeah. And you know, the info grabbing and the shopkeeper swindling can be your your in, entire session, and right. that can be awesome. And then, you know, <laughs> goblin bashing next time. Exactly. So next up, we have a triumph from Northern California Nate, whose NPCs are positively magnetic. So some background here, he was running a published Eberron adventure. I will not tell you guys, just to save you a few spoilers. And in the book... Uh, there was an identi- there was a list of NPCs identified that were on an airship. Uh, each of them had a brief description and some hit points and nothing more. So one NPC ended up standing out for them. Kasha, a Karnathi were-tiger spy. So Nate writes, I had all the passengers interact with the party and got to flex some role-playing muscles, and my players had fun with most of them, but this one stood out. They loved my flirtatious, charmingly playful Karnathi noblewoman, both with her mannerisms and her cliched aristocratic German accent. (laughs) My only female player, new to the group and a little shy still, especially enjoyed this character, coming out of her shell dramatically. The airship was attacked, of course, and crashed spectacularly, but before it did, they tried to rescue all the passengers from the Emerald Claw terrorists. The party watched the bad guys break into her room and cried out in despair, and then heard snarls and screams, then a bloody Kasha-like were-tiger come out. They literally cheered. She and the other NPCs continued their journey by lightning rail alongside the party, and they asked how she became a were-tiger. I decided it was a spying mission in Kubara. The party had been hired by Breland to retrieve a captured Karnathi sword from a fleeing agent, and she made them an offer to buy it back for Karnath. I wanted to tempt them, but didn't really expect them to take the offer, but I overestimated their attachment to Breland and underestimated how much they liked Kasha and gold. They took Kasha's offer, began working for Karnath out of the Lazar Principalities, one of several mission choices I presented, and even received an audience with King Caius, and one of them got tracts of land in Karnath. (laughs) My female player's character, who had several play-by-post-style adventures with me, dug deeper into Kasha's background, which I loved developing, and became like a younger sister to her, married a Karn, and continued doing great work for Karnathi Intelligence. One of my best, most developed NPCs, best surprises, and best experiences as a DM. Okay, I don't understand this at all because uh, who likes Karnath? It's cold and the people don't smile. I, I know. That's the most surprising part of this. <laughs> uh, any, other, any other country in Eberron and I'm like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. But to me, Karnath is just like, no, no, nothing there. Oh yes, it's Poland in the winter. <laughs> right. But, you know, less cheerful. But always winter. <laughs> Maybe it's because the people, really, inside. Oh, actually, okay, she met Caius, right? The weird tiger and, yeah. the, and the PC meets Caius. Yep. Oh, shenanigans. I love it. 
I also um, like I, one of them gets gifted land in Karnath, which has to be the least valuable gift possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it comes with serfs. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> but but still, like you get like two seasons a year to work the land. What are you gonna do with it? Magic, unthought, I guess. Ske- oh, yeah. you got skeletons. You got skeletons to work the land. You're good. You're oh, good. right, 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 right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Karnath has lots of undead. I, we're gonna actually get this in, into this. I think maybe next week when we talk about um, you know bookkeeping and stuff, but. Uh, I think you probably do more long-term planning uh, when when plotting out a campaign arc than I do. Um, but I love when just a random seed that you've sown and you know not expecting it to necessarily go anywhere um, totally sprouts, like it totally takes hold, and your players have latched onto it. And you're like, there, there's that um, sort of like internal. Um, struggle between oh i'm so glad they like this and oh god i don't have anything right (laughs) i i have no idea what her background is i need to come up with this immediately exactly (laughs) but it's so exciting to like go home and be like all right that was an awesome session uh okay the first thing i need to do is figure out who the hell this person is yeah how do do i make this an encore (laughs) like i pulled it off once but how do i do it again right oh the guest actor was just so mesmerizing right (laughs) they're coming back for more exactly Joey Tribbiani is reprising his role. <laughs> I get written off eventually. It's okay. He'll open his mouth. I get written right. off. <laughs> All right. Our next story is from Travis, who now knows that if you break it, you buy it. So the background, the group is playing the finale of Curse of Strahd. Um, we've tried to edit out a few spoilers. They've invaded Castle Ravenloft. They're attempting to kill Strahd. They've killed a bunch of undead, but they haven't killed Strahd yet, and they're about to be overrun. So they're like, no, we're getting out of this castle. So Travis says, we activate our plan D scenario and use a teleportation circle to get back to our home base of sorts. We crash and we get a long rest. As soon as morning comes, we set up for battle in the main room. We hand Father Donovich, our cleric, a luck blade and tell him to wish that Strahd was here. Okay, I like the where this is going. Our DM came up with a great way for our final battle to play out when playing to the witch spell. He decided to teleport everything that looked like Strahd. So we got his five vampire spawn children, his carpets, his tapestries, art of all kinds that looked like him, uh, some living and some not, and let's not, of course, forget the king himself, along with his nightmare steed. It was a crazy and close battle as those tapestries could counterspell and other annoying nonsense. It was the most fulfilling battle and end to a story that I've ever had in D&D. And true to our group's style, the story didn't truly end. We switched GMs and began a new phase of our campaign, rebuilding Barovia. I love that. You broke it, you buy it. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> the king is dead, now fix this country. <laughs> I, think how these, the, I think this is how these should all end, right? You killed a BBEG, well he still has marauding hordes out there. Um, someone needs to control them. Right, exactly. Who's going to pay the mercenaries? Yep. <laughs> uh, can we suggest maybe looking into birthright? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great story. I love um, all the creative ways that I've heard of people uh, having to fight Strahd. You know, we did the uh, Let's Kill Strahd tournament at uh, PAX Unplugged. And, like, you know, that was relatively straightforward we're in Strahd's chapel, like, we have to fight him, right? But in the real game, or in the real uh, in the real adventure, like, you don't get to 
such even footing. <laughs> like you've got to do something to tip the scales in your favor. And I, I just love like, hey, our our backup 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 plan. That's the one that we went with. Yeah, and I love the okay. The wish didn't just screw over the party, right? Um, no, you, you got some. You got something for planning well, right? You know, but you, but you don't get just Strahd alone in, in this room where you can all jump him. Yep. Because if you think about it, if that had happened, it wouldn't have been nearly as memorable a fight. No, no, like the the wish would have short circuited the fun of the adventure, right? Like it would have just undermined everything. Whereas the wish giving you the advantage but not giving you everything gives you that sort of sense of accomplishment uh the the challenge being overcome rather than just being circumvented and i think that's about the the best you can expect from a wish that, that isn't you know really locked down yeah well and especially if you uh <laughs> if you're only giving the dm like you know a couple minutes to react to it and not using it at the end of a prior session all right so our next story comes from will who promises he enjoys the show even though we don't have thacko i have thacko I got, well, I got Thacko. Thacko for days. Uh, well, not on the show, though. My AC is in the toilet, which is good. <laughs> which is good. <laughs> All right. Will says, I played first edition with my friends a lot in middle school, when everyone else was mostly playing third. I played a handful of times since then, but left my books at home when I moved to NYC for law school and didn't think much of it. When everyone was talking about Stranger Things last fall, I mentioned to some law school classmates that I had all the same D&D books as the characters in that show, and we could play. I relied a lot on your show and a couple other podcasts to get back into the mindset of a DM, and it went very well. Only one person had played before, but everyone instantly got into character, debated strategy, etc. The group immediately split the party to be more efficient while searching a town for what turned out to be doppelgangers. I later found out there were at least four or five D&D groups meeting in our class of about 350 to 400 people, which... Okay, no surprise that lawyers are a bunch of nerds. Yeah, pretty much all the lawyers. And actually, no, Angelo's a lawyer. Yeah. Big nerd. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I used to live uh, like on the Harvard Law School campus. Um, all nerds. Yeah. Okay, Will continues. We kept playing that whole year, and we still keep the game going in D.C. with some of the same people. My girlfriend even made one of those Instagram photo booth prop things for when people came over for the next session. Dorky picture attached, also for proof that we were playing first edition in 2017. Oh my god! And, and the the picture is great. Uh, I won't share it with everybody, but will if you if you if you tweet it and tag us, we'll retweet it so everyone can see it. But I, I won't blow up your spot unless you want us to. <laughs> but it is a uh, it is great. It's like one of those picture you know cardboard picture frames that you hold over two people and take a selfie. It's fantastic. Yeah, this reminds me of like. Um... I guess you could call it virtue signaling, but it'd be, you know, presenting presenting to other people that uh, some sort of coded way of letting them know that you're into this game. Uh, we had to do it a lot more in like, you know, the 80s and 90s just because this wasn't nearly as cool, right? Yeah, you couldn't quite let your nerd flag fly. Right. But I've definitely heard of people who, for example, have like a D20 tattoo uh, on like uh you know a little higher than the wrist and you know you just sort of casually roll up a sleeve while you're like looking at something and if someone notices it they'll bring it up you know, <laughs> or, like i i have a friend who has a um who has uh star trek tattoos so uh you don't you don't need to drop star trek into a conversation you just like make sure someone can see your tattoo and then 
Yeah, I, I like that you've got to be like preening to position your tattoo in eyesight, <laughs> like, but but you don't want to make it weird. <laughs> That's why you got to put the tattoo like right under your ear, and then you know you have long hair, and you just flip it back over your ear. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> No, that's also, it's great. I mean, obviously Stranger Things was a big deal for D&D, and, and now like a lot of celebrities have um, started talking about playing D&D and different things, so uh, it's it's great for the popularity of the game, and I'm, I'm glad that Will was able to turn that into meaningful and fun gaming time, uh, rather than just, you know, fun, nostalgic memories of, of back in the day. Although I'm surprised that they still play first edition, um, because lawyers, at least in my experience, are usually... Um, they they find wording very important, and yeah. first edition is probably the version of the game that is, has the the worst wording. Well, maybe they if just want a break. They're mathematicians; it would make sense. <laughs> maybe they just want a break from all that uh, contractual language, and they don't want to play fourth edition. Or yeah, fair. Or maybe they want to argue over you know intent. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now is this rulebook strictly constructed, or do we have loose construction on this rulebook? Look. I can- there's precedent in the Gygax principle, okay? Right. <laughs> now, now Splatbook's <laughs> rights are very important. <laughs> like, if a Splatbook, Splatbooks have the right to overrule the core book. <laughs> if we could just get rid of every every PHB except the first 10, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so uh, this next one is, is rather long, but it was super impactful for us in reading it the first time. Um, this is from Len, who's a longtime listener. Uh, he was introduced to rpgs by a teacher in high school and now he's a teacher who runs an rpg club for his students so um we'll probably have to trade off on this but it's a it was a really heartwarming story so len says one of my favorite moments came from meeting a particularly amazing student that we'll call nelson nelson was dealt a pretty bad hand in life especially for the purposes of fitting in at high school he had significant health issues that left him with a speech impediment and a disfigured face So one week, I had library supervision and discovered Nelson spent every lunch hour hidden at the back of the stacks, all alone. It broke my heart to see this kid so isolated, and so I invited him to join our tabletop games club. He showed up the next day, and I wasn't sure what to expect. I was really proud of the existing members of the club who didn't even bat an eye at this different-looking and different-sounding person. After all, the party was all glass cannons and they needed a tank. And so Nelson rolled up a halfling barbarian and became the toughest, meanest hobbit you ever met. He fit right in with all the other kids at our table, who were each a bit of an outcast in their own way. Months later, I met Nelson's parents. His mom told me, with tears in her eyes, how grateful they were about the club. She told me that for the first time in his life, her son had invited friends over to their house. Really, for the first time, her son had friends. It was a miracle to her. When Nelson graduated, he won a very important trophy at our school, the Most Courageous Student Award, given to a student who overcomes great adversity during their time at school. As part of the award, he was allowed to select which faculty member presented him the award. It was the proudest moment of my career when he selected me, his dungeon master, to do the honors. I wanted to share this story because it speaks to the power of playing games together. The worlds and characters might be imaginary, but the shared experience, the bonding, and the friendships that come out of the game are very real and can be transformative. Um, As a kid who used to eat lunch uh, in the back of the library all alone, I... Yeah, this is this is this is exactly why I got started in in uh, gaming in the first place, right? Which was you guys kind of have to be my friends because we're playing a game together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and then you turn into actual friends, right? 
Yeah, and uh, Len, thanks for sending in that story, and thanks for doing what you do. That's amazing. So, on a bit of a lighter tone, Josh has a story about when he was a first-time GM running Horde of the Dragon Queen. So the background, it's one of the early encounters in Horde of the Dragon Queen that involves a town barricading itself inside a temple to protect itself from raiders. And it looks like it's just a matter of time before the raiders batter the doors down and Josh's group is running low on resources at the end of a long day. So Josh says, They're crouched in some bushes assessing the situation and realize there's no way to overpower the monsters attacking it. So they start devising a plan. Unfortunately, in the early days of my gaming group, this means spending an hour in real time arguing with each other. So I add a time constraint, saying that the fire will soon overtake the building. Suddenly, the player controlling Zook the Illusionist looks up with a shit-eating grin on his face, realizing that he has minor illusion on his sheet. He's got a plan. He projects a wheelbarrow on a hill behind the sanctuary and sends it rolling down directly toward the group of raiders at the back door. As they scatter, the group rolls stealth to get into the building. The paladin and the cleric almost ruin it because they're wearing heavy armor and they're rolling poorly, but the rogue and Zook roll well enough to get them inside unnoticed. And inside, the villagers are in chaos. I tell my group that the main challenge is proper organization. None of the villagers are taking the lead to escape now that they have a chance. You know, I'm trying to set up a nice moment for the rogue or the paladin to use a charisma skill and get everyone out the door, and then have the PCs distract the monsters and have the villagers flee. But suddenly, my group launches into another hour-long argument. It's been a long night, and I'm thinking of calling it. I'm done DMing, and this is a stupid game. But I hear the dwarf cleric, Haman, uh, their player, ask me if he can make a persuasion check to just get everyone out the door. At this point, I should probably mention that Haman's player was a complete munchkin, trying to squeeze... Hey, what's up, Haman? <laughs> trying to squeeze inspiration out of every situation, making sarcastic comments, and trying to change his sheet a dozen times. So I snap at him. Your modifier is minus one. Stop screwing around and let the paladin or the rogue do it. To which he responds, Sure, I have bad charisma, but anyone can roll a natural 20. So Josh says, If you roll a 20, I'll jump in the pool fully clothed. He rolls, Natural 20. My gaming group goes ape I'm so done at this point, but also incredibly amused. Suddenly, Heyman jumps up on a table in the sanctuary and starts directing everyone out. The villagers are forming two single-file lines and flawlessly evacuating. I sigh reluctantly, but I'm a man of my word. I run out into my backyard and jump headfirst into the pool. This is my gaming triumph. Look, a bet's a bet. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, you know, sometimes the dice just do things. <laughs> and and you can't plan on them, and, uh, and it just makes things better for everybody. That's, that's why we love having them. Also... Heyman's player is an appropriate munchkin. It's all about playing the odds. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and you know, when you've got that minus one or minus five, um, that nat 20 is the only thing that's ever going to save you. So just gun for those 20s. Yeah, no, I like that he was like, you know, uh, what would have just been a, an outstanding success and, and, a, and a very surprising one has instead turned out to a surprising success and also my DM soaking wet. So what could go better? <laughs> At least it's, not, it's, it's not every day that you get to uh, dunk your GM. <laughs> I hope he emptied his pockets. Right. Otherwise, it's just too much new phone who dis. Yeah, exactly. All right. So next up is Chris. Uh, and so Chris has been running Tyranny of Dragons for the past few months, but that's less important to him than who he's running it for. Chris writes, 
A regular player, John, learned to play D&D from his dad when John was eight, as his dad has been playing since the 1980s. John was the first DM to my friend Jimmy, and Jimmy was the first DM to me and another regular player named John. And yes, using their real names is less confusing. Recently, I got to be the DM for a new player to D&D, Will, who really loves the game now. So his group now, uh, if you're following along the word puzzle, is uh, two Johns, Jimmy, and Will. Chris says, My happy gaming story is introducing a new player to the game while DMing for my first DM and his first DM. It's a lot of pressure to run a game for the person who taught you how to play the game. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, actually, because we've talked, I think, a little bit about this in the past. In our group, because we've had players come in over time, we all have a different perception of who, like, the group's official GM is. Yeah. Based totally on who was running the campaign at the time you joined, right? So, like, uh, when I joined, Ishan was running Morning Glory, so Ishan is the group's GM, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think of Angelo as the GM because he was running the 4E game when I started. And I think Brian thinks of you yeah, as I know, a GM. Yeah, I know, which is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird because it's like a lot of responsibility. Like, I, you guys don't think of me as the GM, but Brian does. So, like, when I run a new game that's not Rogue Trader, like, I always, I don't want to let Brian down. I don't want him to think that, oh, maybe I'm not the real GM. <laughs> oh, the pressure's on me, okay? Because now Brian has played in a game that you've run. Angelo's running another game now. Um, so when I actually get around to running another game, it's going to be Brian's first one with me running. And I feel like the standards are going to be really high because it's been talked up a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, and he also listens to the podcast on occasion. So he's, he's heard the story on occasion. Love you, Brian. <laughs> uh, but thanks for writing in Chris. All right. This next one is from Matt para para. I don't know. I, I don't know. Who's this guy? Matt Parodi. Uh, Have you heard of this guy? Yeah, he's some guy from like the RPG Academy. Some guy. Yeah. Some guy out in Long Island. All right, Matt says, My wife Lori doesn't play tabletop games, but she's a big Walking Dead fan, so I told her that we could play a zombie apocalypse type game. It wasn't a set rule set or anything like that. Basically, I collected spent bullet casings and shotgun holes from the shooting range I work at and issued them to each player in a random amount. These represented their ammo for each weapon. The only die in the game was a D20 in my hands that was used for any and all conflict resolutions. The PCs only needed to tell me what they wanted to do, and I would roll it to see if there was a success. To keep them on track, I did have a GM PC in the form of a dog. Smart. So this game went on for three or four sessions before the social contract evolved into a four-way Mexican standoff and shooting each other in the back. Uh, since then, we've played the same type of game a handful of times with success and with more non-gamers at the table. Uh, that's a great way to like devise to get new people in. They might not be interested in all of the hobby, but find the thing that they are interested in and and bring that to life. Um, I also really like the idea of having a dog as the GMPC because so often in movies, the dog is the only one who knows what's going on. <laughs> it's very, it's very uh, Son of Sam, though. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should do. what. What should I do? Shoot them in the back. (laughs) (laughs) So our final triumph of the year is from Ryan. uh, On the joys of gaming while being a lightweight. He writes, So in my West Marches campaign, my DM does special sessions on certain holidays and special dates, like the yearly anniversary of our campaign starting April Fool's Day, Thanksgiving, etc. 
On one St. Patrick's Day, our party went into a dungeon, and the DM had us draw cards and split into two teams. He told us we would be competing against each other to get to the end of the dungeon, and whichever team got there first would get bonus experience points. One of the characters on my team had a novelty magic item that was effectively useless, and the DM had given to the player for shits and giggles. It was called the Chalice of Champions, and the enchantment on it was as follows. You are a winner. So, our team began saying that we should win by default because the Chalice of Champions requires that character to win, and in doing so, would make our team win. Our DM, quick-witted as ever, came up with a solution that gave us an advantage, but didn't break the session. Since it was St. Patrick's Day, we take shots, and every shot that a player on our team took was an extra round that our team got to move before the other team could start. So we knocked back like six shots of Kraken spiced rum, two shots each. And at this point in my life, I was a total lightweight. I weighed like 125 pounds soaking wet. Like, a literal lightweight. I think this might have been my first time drinking, so I was absolutely hammered, just lying back in my chair and only opening my eyes when it was my turn, moving my move limit towards the end of the dungeon and ending my turn, then otherwise returning to make a drunken fool of myself by just saying gibberish and looking wildly around the room. Luckily, I'm not a belligerent drunk, so I didn't interrupt the play. Anyways, the competition ended with us using our extra rounds advantages to get to the other team's side of the dungeon and knocking them all unconscious so that we won by default. And that's the story of how D&D taught me what being drunk was like. I think we should do an entire episode on uh, D&D drinking stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, also, like, keep in mind, sometimes being drunk is like that, but other times being drunk is like having a team of adventurers sneak up behind you onto your side of the dungeon and knock you unconscious before you get a chance to start. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's like facing Tucker's kobolds naked. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, I I will say Kraken Spice Rum. Shane, you weren't there for this um, session, but uh, when the Morning Glory campaign fought the Kraken, we actually did happen to have Kraken Spiced Rum. Oh, it just happened to um, have it, huh? It, I actually, it, yeah, we, I did not buy it. <laughs> uh, so that's a fitting one to end on uh, for this year. As New Year's is coming up in a couple days, uh, just a reminder: drink responsibly. Do not drink and drive on New Year's Eve. It's not worth it. Yeah, stay home and game. Yeah, or do that. <laughs> all right, do you hear that, Ishan? I can't hear you over the sound of all this winning that this trophy says I am doing. Sorry, uh, what? What? All right, I'm going to the Character Creation Forge, and I'm going to roll up a bigger winner. But before we Damn do that, it. let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sense Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPT Cast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we've got the Poacher. Because, I don't know, we took a look at Xanathar's. Um, there are a lot of cool spells in here that are restricted to just one or very few classes. I think the one that sort of caught our eye was uh, Find Greater Steed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paladin spell. Let's you ride a Pegasus. Pretty cool. Uh, but man, it takes forever to get that Pegasus. It's what, level four? And one of Paladins get level four spells uh, forever? Yeah, like level, I don't know, 12 or something. 56 or something like that. Yeah, right. yeah it's ridiculous. Gotta be, gotta be level 3,000. Too late. Too late in the game. So, what if there's a character that got that earlier? And, you know, maybe a few other things. Yeah, what if there was a character who poached those skills and abilities from other classes? 
because, you know, the paladin is too upstanding to do that. So what is the build, Ishan? It's Lore Bard 15, Tome Warlock 5. So we know that a bard-heavy build is a good build because bards are probably one of the top-tier classes in 5e, and Lore Bard is really great because you get, you know, all of those skills um, and all the bard goodies. Inspiration dice, probably five times per rest. Jack of all trades, which just makes you better at everything. Yeah, expertise. Cutting words, which is amazing. But most importantly, you've got magical secrets. Uh, up to level eight spells. Yeah, and you'll get six of them. Uh, two at level six, another two at level 10, and two more at level 14. And remember, these are known spells, so you can unlearn and relearn them as you go, depending on um, what's more interesting at a particular level. And also, when you get up to higher levels, you can essentially retrain to the higher level spell so you can have multiple high level magical secret spells right so what are some of the cool spells that you should be thinking about poaching as uh as a lore bard well of course you start out at fine steed right that's a second level spell so you as a bard can get that one as early as level six because that's when you get your first magical secrets and of course later you can retrain it to find greater steed yeah by later you mean like level seven yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you spend a week on uh, a war horse, and you're like, this is cool. I like this horse. I wish this horse could fly. <laughs> Actually, I'm not even sure if you can use a Pegasus. I think it might be a griffin, but what's the difference? I mean, if you're playing um, House Vidalis in Eberron, oh, man. I mean, they make they make griffins. Like mage-bred griffins that you can ride. I think that's perfect for this. Um, but there's some other cool Xanathar's spells. I like Holy Weapon, which basically means you're already sitting on the Pegasus, right? So you may as well just pretend to be the Paladin all the way. Yep. You got your bright, shiny weapon. You essentially have a Holy Avenger. And who's going like, to who's gonna say you're lying? You're on the Pegasus and you have, yeah, and you a, have bright, a Holy shiny Avenger. sword. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's also the Guardian of Nature spell. Yeah, this is uh, the Ranger Druid spell that either turns you into like a scary bear person who's really great in melee combat uh, or a scary tree person who's really good at like flinging wisdom spells or or, uh, dexterity uh, attacks. Then you've got some PHP standards like Counterspell, Contingency, uh, Revivify obviously keeps your friends and allies from dying on you. Uh, And then, you know, Fireball. Can't miss with Fireball. Yeah, like I love that, um, you know, if you want to be a wizard, you you just pick up Fireball. If you want to be a cleric, you pick up Revivify. And I, I love that you, um, more than any other class, or I guess the bard alone is the one who can pair Contingency with literally any other spell, right? Mm-hmm. So Contingency Revivify. Right. Yeah, I fall down. <laughs> uh, and then there's also another spell from Xanathar, Shadows of Moil. I love this one. Um, you can't combine it with Holy Weapon because they're both concentration spells, but I love that um, it, it kind of does like this shadow fire shield type thing where people who attack you take damage, but it also makes you heavily obscured. Like, you are heavily obscured, which means that it's disadvantage to attack you, and I'm pretty sure it's advantage when you attack. So then from uh tome warlock we will have our book of ancient secrets which will allow us to poach ritual spells up to third level from any class yeah um and i also like the idea of maybe picking up ritual caster later 
which means you'll be able to pick one class where you can grab ritual spells uh, much higher than that. Although I think ritual spells probably top out at like level six or something like that. But wizard's probably the way to go just because you've got the most options. Right. So who is your poacher, Ishan? My poacher is, I think, a charlatan and probably has the charlatan background. Because remember, Bard, you also get um, four expertises. So persuasion, deception, all, all those fun spells and remember that warlock gets uh access to an invocation that lets you cast disguise self at will uh and i think bards can also pick up friends so (laughs) it's a a nice little combo where you've got someone who earlier in her career she probably makes a lot of enemies because she you know when she's trying to swindle people or just convince people to help her out um she may be you know, charms them, uses some enchantment magic and says, you know, I think you're going to help me. But when that wears off, people get pretty mad and she's got to get out of town really often. Uh, Later, she's like, okay, you know what? Let me, let me pair this up with some disguises. So maybe they're not necessarily mad at me, but she's got to stay on the move. Um, And people don't trust her, but you know who people really do trust? A paladins. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, eventually she scrapes together and buys some, like, nice shiny armor, um, 1,500 gold for, for plate mail. And people are like, all right, all right, yeah, I can. I guess I can get behind that. It's well burnished because of prestidigitation. Yeah, you're not exactly uh, proficient in it, though. <laughs> so no, you're going to no. need a feat. <laughs> <laughs> you can wear it. You can wear it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just not going to help you much. Remember, it's all about lying. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt your uh, deception skill checks. Right. Um, but really, eventually she doubles down and is like, you know what? I need, I need a steed and I need a sword. That's, that's what's going to convince people. Perfect. And then just to confuse him, she drops a fireball. Why not? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, paladin of light. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about your poacher? So you took the, the obvious approach for a poacher in a, as a player character in a party. Uh, I will take the alternative, uh, my character is a rival to the party and I'm imagining that they go back or she goes back to one of the uh, training grounds of one of the characters and she's that type A kind of, you know, first in her class sort of super student who just has to be the best at everything uh, and anything you can do, I can do better, right? Like uh, maybe she wasn't nobility at a, uh, at a, private school for uh, wizards and uh, magicians and such. And so she had a chip on her shoulder um, and she just has to be number one. And if that means that she's going to learn your secrets uh, and prove that she can do them better than you, well, that's what it means. I mean, bards do make the best counterspellers. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and obviously she'll spend her time, I don't know, chasing down the party and harassing them by being better than them. (laughs) Whatever trick the party used last time to defeat her, she uses this time. Right, exactly. Better. <laughs> uh, yeah, she'll probably have to track down a, a mirror party, you know, and then make a pithy name as a pun off of your party's name. Uh, you know, proper rival stuff. Yeah. I like that she doesn't think of herself as a rival, but as a big fan. The party's biggest fan. You know, uh, I like what you guys do. Mm, this is I, good. It just, it could use some, you know, improvement. Yeah, I mean, you, you could just do it better. I, well, you can. I can. Right. You can do it like this. Right. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. 
Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to do this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. You can also uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you do, we'll read it on the air. So, Ishan, I think we have a review to read. We're uh, <laughs> quite a bit behind schedule on those. Yeah, this one is uh, called One of the Best by 86That. This has quickly become one of my favorite RPG advice podcasts. The hosts are knowledgeable and thoughtful, their discussions are prepared but not rehearsed, and they bring a laid-back enthusiasm to every discussion. The audio is good quality, and their voices are pleasant to listen to. Pick any topic from their catalog, they'll give you some new things to bring to your game. Uh, Well, maybe audio quality is not the best on this episode. Uh... Yeah, uh, well, hopefully it's okay. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about bookkeeping. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building Ghost Rider. Well, that's it for episode 126 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 